Good morning. I need a third arm. Uh, we have two Bible readings this morning uh, from Genesis 12 and Galatians 3. And Genesis 12 is from verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 to 14. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. A few weeks ago, when we were in our Consider series, for those of you who were here, we spent some time considering the world around us and, and what it tells us about what God is like. And I was overcome by a sense of awe and wonder that the God who created the universe is bigger than it all and that he holds it all in his hands. So I've got to be honest, I loved writing that sermon and loved preaching it. When it came to this series and this sermon and looking at the genealogy of Jesus, I wasn't actually expecting to have the same kind of exciting experience that I had when I got to look at the universe. When it comes to exploring the universe, it's so exciting. And then looking at a list of family tree names, I was kind of like, there's not really a comparison in my mind between those two things. And so imagine my surprise and how humbled I've been in the last week that I've actually experienced the same sense of awe and wonder coming to look at the genealogy of Jesus that I had when I was looking at the universe. I want you to consider for a moment the threads of history. Pause and try and think about everything you know that's ever happened in the history of the world at the same time. I get a few big things come to mind and then a few little things from my life, but to be able to think about all of history at once is absolutely overwhelming and we can't do it. And yet God holds all of the threads of history, all of the different things that have happened throughout history, he holds them all. He's weaving them together and he knows how they're going to end. That's crazy. So you know that feeling when 
you know two people from completely different circles and then you come to find out that they know each other and you're confused about what the connection could possibly be between those two people. God never has that feeling. He's the one who created those connections. He knows all of the ways that we're connected to all of the people, the way that we are connected to people in the history of the world and the way that we're going to be connected to people in the future. God knows all of that and he holds all of that and that's amazing. And so I've had this same sense of awe and wonder that God holds all of history in his hands as well as the universe and that's quite incredible. So genealogies aren't as boring as I thought they were when I started at the beginning of this week. The Bible is a lot like this. Uh, There are thousands of connections between people and stories in the Bible that are just waiting to be discovered by us if we would open up and do the work to understand the genealogies. So the Bible is one big story, one big unified story made up of lots of little stories that are all pointing and leading somewhere. The Bible authors want us to see that they're all pointing and leading to Jesus. And God somehow holds all of it together. From Genesis to Revelation, God knows everything that's happened, everything that was, everything that is now, and everything that will be to come. God knows it all and is weaving all of history together and is in control of where it's going, which is pretty incredible. And so that's what I want us to be thinking about as we dive into what it means that there's a lot of names in the Bible and we don't necessarily know who they all are and we don't necessarily care about some of the people in the stories. So our Advent series this year is focusing on the genealogies of Jesus found at the beginning of Matthew and Luke's accounts of Jesus' life. These are the parts of the Bible that we usually skip over because they're kind of boring and we can't pronounce their names. It's difficult to do. They're not in our language. And we don't know who most of the people are a lot of the time. Yet, these names are in the Bible for a reason. These family trees are in the Bible for a reason. And they're all pointing to something. They're pointing to the fact that this is not a new story. The story of Jesus is the continuation of something that has come before. They're there to connect God's story of creating the world and creating a people to what comes next. And they're there to tell us that Jesus is the long-awaited king. So by connecting Jesus to significant figures from Israel's history, the authors of the gospel are making clear that he is the one that all of the stories point to, that he is the one who fulfills all of the promises, and he is the one in whom all of their hopes and longings and dreams and expectations are realised. And so today we're going to spend some time unpacking what it means that Jesus is the son of Abraham, that Jesus is the true and better Abraham, the one in whom Abraham's story finds its fulfillment. But the story doesn't start with Jesus or even with Abraham. It all starts in the beginning when God creates. God creates humans in his image for relationship with himself and with each other. And God blesses the humans. It says that in Genesis 1:28. God blesses the humans. So we learn early in the story that God is a God who loves to bless his people and desires to be in relationship with them. So our definition of what it means to be blessed needs to start with God and the first humans in the garden, not a search on Instagram of hashtag blessed and all the things that people think are blessings. Our definition of blessings needs to start in the garden. Adam and Eve were created in perfect relationship with God and with each other. And on top of that, all their physical needs were met in Eden. So life in the garden defines what blessing looks like and it has spiritual, emotional, psychological and material aspects to it. 
in the garden, a flourishing, blessed life is first and foremost found in vibrant relationship with God, which leads to healthy relationships with others, a material and emotional wholeness and wellness. So we learn that God is a God who blesses his people, and through relationship with him, humanity flourishes. And from the outset, humans were created to be outward-looking, created to be outward-focused. The first humans were to have a family and to care for one another and to care for creation. Something that would benefit themselves, for sure, but something that would also bless the generations to come. From the very beginning, humans have been blessed by God to be a blessing to others. But things don't go so well when humans choose to define good and evil for themselves. Sin enters creation, relationships are broken, and the blessings, the good things of God that he has given to his people, become curses. So the blessing of uh, childbirth becomes hard and dangerous and painful. The blessing of work becomes back-breaking labor, and the blessing of family becomes a series of dysfunctional relationships. And things go from bad to worse as humanity continues to try to take the place of God and to establish their own kingdoms. And this all culminates in the building of a city called Babel. So rather than spread out and fill the earth like God has commanded, the people gather in one location and they build a city to protect themselves. And then they have this idea, let's build a tower, let's make ourselves gods, let's reach the heavens, and then let's ask God to come down and to bless us. So the people command that God comes down and blesses their project. But God doesn't bless their project, he condemns it. God confuses their speech, he creates languages, people can no longer understand one another, and God scatters them out to the ends of the earth the way he had commanded them to do in the first place. You might be wondering, what has that got to do with anything? That's Genesis 11, and we're about to start reading from Genesis 12, and this brings us to Abraham. So this story of Babel, the scattering of the speeches, is the backdrop to what God says to Abraham here. So Genesis 12, 1 to 3, God says to Abram, or Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So God chooses Abraham, one man to be the father of one nation, through whom all of the redemptive blessings are going to come to the nations and to all of creation. God's promise to Abraham is God's answer to the brokenness and sin in the world. God is going to restore his good creation. So Genesis 12, 1 to 3 might not sound extremely significant, but it actually sets up a blueprint for the whole rest of the Bible for the way that God is going to bring his redemptive purposes to the world and the way God is going to bless the nations. So here God chooses Abraham to be the vehicle through which he will restore blessing to the whole world, which is first and foremost about restoring flourishing relationships between God and humanity. And this blessing is not designed to stay with Abraham and his family. Abraham is not just blessed so that his family alone can enjoy flourishing. God establishes a particular people to embody the blessing, to take the blessing to the nations. They are blessed to be a blessing to all people on earth. This is God's promise to Abraham. If we read through the Old Testament, this promise is passed down from generation to generation, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and eventually to the nation of Israel. Occasionally, the people of God respond in faith to the promises and are blessings to the nation around them. 
but more often than not, they doubt, and they respond with fear and with self-protection, and they attempt to fulfill the promises in their own ways. Uh, if you've read any of the Old Testament, you'll know that it never ends well for the people when they do that. Yet God, in his goodness and faithfulness, continues to call the people back to himself and to reestablish the promises given to Abraham. They are blessed to be a blessing to the nations. Around the time that everything is going horribly wrong in Israel's story, when Israel do such a bad job at being a blessing to the nations around them, that God actually uses the nations to bring judgment upon them, it's at this time that we see the prophet Isaiah stand up and give this stunning vision of what is to come. And it's this vision of God's kingdom being established on a high mountain and all of the nations flooding to God's kingdom, all of the nations of the world streaming to it. The word there is actually, uh, should be translated as river. We don't often hear the word river being used as a verb, but all of the nations will river to the mountain of God. It's this beautiful imagery that kind of undoes what's happening at Babel. Babel, they build the tower for themselves and ask God to come. Here God's establishing this beautiful kingdom and all of the nations are rivering to it. It's this amazing imagery of the nations unified in God's kingdom, but it's painted against a bleak backdrop of the reality that those very same nations that will one day come to the mountain of God are currently at war and in conflict with one another. So by the time we reach the end of the Old Testament, the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 seems like a fail. The people are asking God, where are you? You haven't actually fulfilled your promise that we will be a blessing to the nations. Uh, the people really only have themselves to blame, but things are looking bleak. God has made them a great big nation, but the people haven't done a good job of accepting God's blessing trusting in God's blessing or being a blessing to the nations. And so we're left wondering, how can God possibly fix this mess? Can he fulfill his promises? Can this picture of all of the nations streaming into God's kingdom actually happen? At this point in the story, I want you to imagine yourself being at a musical or a play. And you don't know how the story ends, so not one you've seen before, not like The Wizard of Oz or Wicked or something where you know how it's going to end. I want you to imagine that you're in a play and you don't know how it's ending. And the curtains come down for intermission at the most intense part of the story so far. The story has been building and building, and at intermission, you're left wondering how it could ever possibly be resolved. How are the main characters going to live their happy ever after, if you want to think about it like that? So you go out into the foyer and you have a toilet break and get your chocolate and then the sound in the foyer happens to call you back into the theatre. The intermission ends, you take your seat, the lights dim, the music crescendos, the curtains go up, you're on the edge of your seat waiting to hear what the first line is going to be. Will it be funny? Will it be emotive? Will it point the way the story is going to end? Here it is, the first line, the line that everything has been building towards. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David, 
skipping 14 generations, Jacob, the father of Joseph, husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah, the King. The anticipation builds so much at the end of the Old Testament, and then the New Testament opens with a list of names. Not the most inspiring thing ever. Not how I would choose to start the second act of this epic narrative. Why are they there? With the Old Testament as a backdrop and this family history tying the two together, suddenly we see that God hasn't lost the plot. He hasn't given up. Everything is connected and somehow the Messiah, this baby that has been born, is the answer to it all. Jesus is the son of Abraham. And when we hear these words, everything we know about Abraham should be at the forefront of our minds. Matthew is calling Jesus the son of Abraham and in doing so is conjuring up in the minds of the original hearers all of these promises. Matthew wants to make it very clear from the beginning that Jesus' vocation, his calling, is related to the, God's original intention for flourishing, for relationship and for blessing. Where Abraham tried and failed, where Israel tried and failed, Jesus has come to bring completion to the promise of the blessing to the nations. And this is why Paul can write in Galatians, the passage that Delete read for us, that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Jesus is the offspring, the son of Abraham, through whom all people on earth will be blessed. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. Everything leading up to the coming of the Messiah has pointed to the inclusion of all people in God's kingdom. This is not a new story, but a continuation and fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And with this promise to Abraham in our minds, this blessed to be a blessing to the nations, Jesus' story shouldn't be a total surprise to us. This is not a new story. And so as we read Jesus' story, we should go, oh yeah, that makes sense of all the things that have come before. So in Jesus' birth, we see a baby born to the least likely of parents. He's not born to a king or to the wealthy or to the upper class. It isn't famous or noble people who visit him in a palace, but shepherds who visit him in a stable in a backwater town in the middle of nowhere of no significance in the Roman Empire. There's something different about this baby. Is he really going to be the king, the Messiah? In Jesus' birth, we see already that unlikely people are included in the story. And then in Jesus' life, we see him interacting with healing, feeding, forgiving, and caring for all kinds of people. The kinds of people that it was normal to exclude. The kinds of people that no one wanted anything to do with. And not just the Jews, not just the Old Testament people of God who were called to be God's particular people. Jesus' ministry extends to the Gentiles, to the nations. He healed the sick and fed the hungry without discrimination. Jesus embodied the blessing to the nations in the way he interacted with people. Then this embodied blessing is broken and killed for the healing of the nations and for the reconciliation of all creation. In Jesus' death and resurrection, we see the ultimate fulfillment of the blessings of God. Jesus' death and resurrection makes a way for all people to be in relationship with God again and for things to be put right. Jesus tears down the barriers of sin and death that stood in the way of us receiving the blessing of God. So Jesus makes a way for all people, all nations, to receive God's blessing and to be in right relationship with him as it was always meant to be. If that's not amazing enough, after the resurrection, Jesus gathers his misfit bunch of followers together and says, okay, I've shown you how to do it. Now it's your turn. 
you go out and be a blessing to the nations. Not just to people like us, but go and spread the good news of the kingdom and the reign of God to the ends of the earth. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. So where Abraham failed and where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. He came to be a blessing to the nations and then invited his followers to go and do the same. And they did. At Pentecost, there was people from every nation gathered in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit descended on the disciples and the disciples began to share the good news and everyone heard it in their own language. The curse of confused language at Babel is begun to be undone here. The nations began to hear about Jesus in their own language and were brought to be in relationship with him. And then Jesus' followers went out from there proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and the reign of God to the ends of the earth, as Jesus' followers have done ever since that day. Now, I don't know your family history. I don't know your genealogy and whether anyone sitting in this room has Jewish heritage today. Uh, but for most of us, we're sitting here today because someone told someone who told someone who told someone who told us the good news of Jesus. Someone went to the nations and that's how we came to hear about Jesus and be sitting here today, which is pretty incredible. And now, as Paul says in his letter to Galatians, by faith in Jesus, we are now included in the promise to Abraham. We've been adopted into the family by baptism and we are heirs of the promise. So everyone who has put their faith in Jesus and claims to be his followers are now called to be a blessing to the nations also. Paul says, He, Jesus, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ. This is our story. We are invited to be a part of the redemptive history of God's big story of bringing all of the nations to him. The good news of Jesus and the coming kingdom is not meant to stay with us. It wasn't designed to be tucked away in our hearts for our own enjoyment and our own flourishing. It was designed to overflow from us. We have been blessed to be a blessing to the nations. So where Abraham and his descendants failed to be a blessing to the nations, Jesus has succeeded and invites us in participating in the ongoing mission of bringing all people into relationship with him. The church has metaphorically become this great nation that God is building and blessing who receives God's blessing and then overflows God's blessing to the world. Now, there is a really important line that we need to walk here and something that we've uh, talked about a little bit already this morning. We're not trying to make people just like us. We don't want to go to the nations and say to them, our Western version of cultural Christianity is the right way. We want to help introduce people to Jesus and then help them and empower them to discover language for Jesus in their own culture and their own place. Uh, we don't want to say, as colonizers have done in the past, the Western way is the right way. We want to go to the nations and say, this is Jesus, he's awesome. What does it look like in your culture, in your language, to understand and express this for yourselves? So there is a line that we need to walk here. And I think the image in Revelation um, of the renewed heavens and new earth paint this so beautifully because we see that every nation, every tribe and every language are present in the new creation. So the cultural and ethnic differences are not done away with. We don't uh, enter the new creation and all become the same. Our diversity is still there, which is so beautiful, but we have one message and one voice that salvation and restoration are found in Jesus. So we're not trying to build a homogenous group of people, but a diverse people unified and made family in Jesus. 
And I got a glimpse of this in 2015. I was at a conference in Germany and there was around 75 nations represented at this conference. And on the last day of the conference, we were invited to pray the Lord's Prayer at the same time, but in our native tongue. There was probably only three or four other nations who spoke English and then everybody else had different language. And so you can imagine that it was noisy and it was messy and people were finishing at different times and none of the phrasing matched up, but oh my goodness, it was beautiful. It was a picture for me of what the new creation will be like, that all nations will be worshipping Jesus. It was absolutely beautiful. And in that moment, I think there was more that united us than divided us. There were so many reasons, theological, all sorts of things, so many reasons that we could have disagreed. And in that moment of coming together and saying, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in 75 different languages was absolutely stunning. Yet, it's our differences between nations that seems to be the thing that causes a lot of conflict. We can look around the world today and see all of the division and inequality that still exists. Nations are at war and in poverty. And just like the people of Israel before Jesus came, it can be really hard to see how God is going to fulfill his promises of blessing the nations. And then we remember that it's through us that we are the ones called to be a blessing to the nations and to work for building the kingdom so that that day when we are standing at the mountain of God, that it is all nations streaming towards it. We are called to embody the blessing to the nations by the power of the Spirit. And so you might be thinking, what in goodness name can I possibly do? How can I contribute to the blessing of the nations? I've got a few examples from our community to point to, and then we might have a think about for those of us who you know, are not called overseas, what it might look like. But here's a few things that it could look like for you. It could look like moving to a remote part of the world to work on Bible translations so that people can meet a God who speaks to them in their own language. That line in the video about uh, what would it be like for you if you didn't know God spoke your language, man, that gets me because, of course, God speaks English. He speaks English because we have hundreds of translations. But what about a God who speaks a language that maybe we haven't put the Bible in yet? What would it look like for you to contribute to that? It might look like working with Christian university students in Tanzania like Tammy and Arthur do. Or it might look like moving overseas to study and your posture of blessing as you go, Josh and Tamara. What's it going to look like to bless the people of Canada while you are there? It might look like spending time with Christians in East Asia, helping them cultivate creative expressions of worship in a way that makes sense in their own culture, like Dalip and May do. Uh, if you want to hear more about that, talk to them about the work that they do with OM. It might look like taking high school students to Cambodia like Mark and Brad do, or it might look like being a high school student that gets taken to Cambodia to experience life there. Or it could look like teaching the Old Testament in Indonesia like Melinda's going to be doing in January, and you should ask her a little bit more about that. There are so many ways that each of us can take our gifts and the blessings that we have been given by God to the nations. But for most of us, at this point in time at least, we're called to stay and so I wonder, what does it look like to be a blessing to the nations from wherever we find ourselves, whatever the location is that we find ourselves in the world? Because that passage in Galatians says, if we are in Christ, the promise of being, a, being blessed is ours, as in we will receive God's blessing, but that's not meant to stay with us. The call to be a blessing to the nations is ours as well. And I think the beauty of living in a multicultural country like Australia is that the nations have come to us. 
the nations are on my street and in my suburb, and it is wonderful and it is tasty. Uh, I had baklava, locally made baklava yesterday, and it was amazing. I just think, imagine what we would miss out on if the nations hadn't come to us. Um, the culture, the food, the amazing people. And so for you, it might actually just look like befriending the people on your street. Um, I don't know what suburbs you all live in, uh, but I live pretty close to here, and it is a really multicultural neighbourhood. And so the minute I meet my neighbours, I'm meeting the nations, and it's a wonderful thing. It could like, look like getting involved in our local primary schools, which are equally as diverse as our neighbourhoods. Uh, there are lots of English as additional language reading programs and places that we can get involved there. Or... It might look like uh, humbling ourselves and coming along to something like the Change the Heart prayer service and hearing about the First Nations, many nations of this land, learning from them, experiencing life with them, hearing their perspective of how Jesus has changed things for them and also getting to share a little bit of how Jesus has changed things for us. There are lots of opportunities in our local neighbourhood and in the things that we're doing here at Richmond to get involved with the nations. And so I want you to think about this as we um, head into the crazy Christmas season where it can be so easy just to be focused on our immediate family and all of the crazy and all of the presents. Presents, as in giving of presents and having to buy presents. So what does it look like for you to embody the blessing to the nations the way our incarnate God did? It's what Christmas is all about, learning to be a blessing to other people. So how can you bless someone by providing for their spiritual or emotional or psychological or material well-being this Christmas? Something to think about. We know that things aren't perfect now. Uh, We live in the now but not yet of the kingdom in between Jesus having come and his coming again. But we're working for and longing for the day when Jesus comes back to set everything right. And we are called to live now in light of the day when all of the nations will be streaming to the mountain of God. So we're called to live as a blessing to all people. And this was God's plan from the very start, for God to redeem all people, not just a specific ethnic group. This is God's command to Abraham to bless the nations. It was in Isaiah's vision that in the last days, all of the people would stream to the kingdom of God. This was in Jesus' embodiment of the message that all people are welcome. It was in the movement of the early church as the Spirit gave language for the good news of Jesus so that all could understand. And that's the vision for the church today, one where we get to share in a kingdom with those who are different from us, different in terms of race, language, nationality, social status, and religious background. This is where the promise to Abraham finds its fulfillment. We are blessed to be a blessing as we long for the day when Jesus will come and everything will be put right. Let's pray. Jesus, I am overwhelmed again at the, the way that you have held all of history together, that you have uh, been a blessing to the people in the very beginning, that you've promised to be a blessing to the nations the whole way throughout your big story, uh, and that you invite us to participate in it. It can seem uh, scary and overwhelming at the thought of having to take your message to the nations and to get to know people or to leave our comfort zones and move overseas. Uh, But God, this is the call that you have placed on us and on the church and people who uh, follow you. So we pray that you would be stirring in us the ways that uh, we can be a blessing to the nations, whether it is going overseas and translating the Bible or um, loving people on our street who um, are new arrivals or um, 
who uh, have not been in this country for very long, or whether it looks like loving uh, the nations that were here long before we ever were. God, would you stir in us a passion for your people, uh, your people all over the world and the people that don't know you? Um, Would you send us out, give us courage by your spirit, uh, that we would be people who can be a blessing to the nations? And all these things we pray in your name. Amen.